Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the Maine Short Film Festival, Thursday, March 24th at the Stonington Opera House. Films by Maine filmmakers on the Penobscot River, Maine artists, organic farming with comedy and horror. The Maine Short Film Festival, March 24th at 7 p.m. in the Stonington Opera House. Just a few seconds before 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Democracy Forum with your host, Ann Luther, of the League of Women Voters, is up next. Good morning. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the second program in our series this election year to be broadcast at this time on the third Friday of the month. We're featuring topics in participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about whose democracy is it? Wealth and income inequality, money and politics. The great American experiment in democracy was founded on the ideal of a sovereign people, government responsive to the will of its citizens, Does American democracy still serve that ideal, or has money in politics created a form of government that serves the interests of the wealthy few over the mass of ordinary citizens? We'll be taking your calls during the second half of the show, so stand by to join the conversation. We have only one line open for listener calling today, so if you get a busy signal, be patient and hang on. Anyway, this is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum today. Let me introduce our guests. Joining us by telephone is Mark Schmidt. Mark is the director of the Political Reform Program at New America, a nonprofit citizen and civic enterprise dedicated to the renewal of American politics, prosperity, and purpose in the digital age. Welcome, Mark. Good morning. I'm glad to be on with you. Thanks for joining us. In the studio today is Tony Corrado. Tony is professor of government at Colby College and a non-resident senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. Welcome, Tony. Pleasure to be with you, Anne. We are really privileged to have these two gentlemen joining us today. They're two of the top thinkers on this subject in the country, so this is going to be a great conversation. There's a well-known quote from the Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis that says, We can have democracy in this country, or we can have great wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, but we can't have both. Today, according to some some researchers, we have more concentration of wealth and income than any time in our history. Does this trend pose a threat to democracy? How so? Does money rule in elections and, and in governing? And where does that leave the rest of us? Tony, let me put the question to you first. Are elections and policy outcomes more responsive to wealthy donors than to ordinary voters? And how different is the current state of affairs from what was envisioned by our founders and from what has prevailed throughout our history? Well, the current system is certainly different from what we saw at the American founding, where there was a concern about how to best reflect the views of the people. Uh, while they weren't advocates of direct democracy, they certainly believed that a representative government that would filter public opinion so that the public good might emerge was the foundation of our whole constitutional system. 
And what we see today is a move away from that insofar as there's been a greater concentration of wealth than ever before. And many of those who have the most wealth are becoming more and more active in politics. So that as a result, we've developed a system where it's possible now for millionaires or billionaires to spend unlimited amounts of money or in various ways contribute unlimited amounts of money. And that has resulted in a system where a relatively small group of wealthy individuals now can exert extraordinary influence on the process. Uh, in particular, they can have their voices heard in ways that the average citizen can't. They have a greater influence on public policy because of the fact that they can either run multi-million dollar advertising campaigns or lobbying campaigns or simply because of the concern about the amount of money they can put into the process leads legislatives to to give greater ear to their concerns. And a lot of the recent studies that have been done of policy has shown that policy outcomes now are starting to reflect the interests of the wealthy, uh, that they clearly have different interests from the American public. They have different views on crucial policy issues than most of the public. And consequently, what we're seeing uh, is policy that reflects their preferences much more than those of the average citizen. And that is in large part a reflection of the amount of pressure they can bring to bear on the system as the result of their financial resources. What do you want to add to that, Mark? Well, I, I think it's terrific, and I'm glad to be on, on with Tony. Um, I, I think one thing to add to that is that is that even before you get into the issues of, of money and politics, the wealthy already have an enormous influence uh, through, you know, some a, a large employer in a state, the people that politicians are spending time around, uh, that kind of thing. So, you know, one fascinating, very important book that came out a couple of years ago by Martin Dillons of, of Princeton really looked at the the, the misalignment between. Uh, the preferences of, of the public and the the outcomes of, of politics over a 40-year period. And there was a lot of, there was, the, the public opinion and outcomes didn't align, especially public opinion of low- and middle-income people, didn't connect with, with political outcomes, even in the 60s and 70s, even in periods when we generally think the political process was working somewhat better. So I think one way to think of it is that there's a kind of base level of enormous influence of the wealthy that under any circumstance and then you add to it these circumstances where where the wealthy can can essentially create a candidate entirely something we really hadn't seen uh since since the you know the nixon era uh and and fully bank a few people can fully bankroll either a candidate or an attack on on a on a, a candidate we hadn't seen that before. Think of that as a kind of massive boost up of an already high level of, of inequality. And then you add to that uh, just a much higher level of political engagement around issues that are of immediate financial interest to some of these donors. And you, you, you've got a situation that is, uh, that, that is radically different from from what it prevailed before. Sort of going back to the Gillen's research, can either of you cite some examples to help our listeners connect to some of the issues where policy outcomes have differed from what the vast majority of American people might have wanted? Um, well, Mark? often 
often tax cuts, things like the, 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 the Bush tax cuts early on were not, you know, in general, the public favors tax cuts. They certainly didn't favor tax cuts that were that were weighted as heavily towards the high end as those were. So that's an often cited example. Do you want to add an example, Tony? Well, there are a couple of ways we can look at this. Uh, one is the fact that it's often the case on regulatory matters and on regulations that business interests and more wealthier interests have uh, a real advantage. Uh, you saw that, for example, in something like the TARP program that was adopted uh, after the Great Recession of uh, 2008. We've seen that recently in terms of uh, free trade agreements and some of the other market regulations that have been uh, pursued in the last few years. Another place where you uh, see this is often in terms of uh, health care or education where the public has a much broader view of the types of government role that should be played in healthcare and education. And there's a very different view amongst those who are wealthier or amongst some of the business interests. Uh, so that, for example, you generally find something like when asked, do you think government should provide the funding that's necessary to provide good education? You'll have 87% of the public uh, that says yes. You'll have about 35% of the wealthier interests who say mm -hmm, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, or you see it more recently now as we start to grapple with this uh, problem of income inequality and the, the very different views that are held on income inequality and the extent to which uh, wealthier Americans should pay a higher share of taxes. Mm-hmm. Some people are saying and sort of casting back into the Republican primary that Jeb Bush's poor showing and his um, early dropping out, despite the fact of his having accumulated massive resources and the surprisingly competitive race that Bernie Sanders is running, mm -hmm. indicate that maybe money isn't such a big factor as it, as it once was. What's the story there? Well, I think that you know the Jeb Bush campaign in the 2016 presidential race overall is a very uh, interesting example of both the role of money and the limits of money. Uh, if we start with Jeb Bush, uh, here was a candidate who came in with a substantial fundraising base. He quickly raised an enormous amount of money uh, and was seen as a candidate that was likely to be propelled to the nomination in large part because he was going to be able to outspend everyone else. And not just through his campaign committee, but also through this super PAC that had been set up that had raised over $100 million even before Jeb Bush got into the race. And what we found is that, uh, you know, Jeb Bush did not do very well. I mean, money is important because it can establish a candidate as being perceived as a viable candidate, that you have the resources to mount a viable campaign. And it can get your message heard. But then it's still up to the voters to listen to the message. And one of the things I found most interesting about the Bush experience, for example, is that if you looked at his campaign, 89% of the money he raised was from individuals who gave $1,000 or more. Uh, and then the super PAC largely re relied on million-dollar contributions. And you contrast that with Bernie Sanders, 
who has you know recruited a million donors faster than any candidate in American political history. He amassed 2.5 million individual contributions faster than anyone in U.S. history and has raised uh, more money, frankly, than even the Bernie Sanders campaign ever contemplated raising. And it's uh, almost all from small donations. Over 60 percent of his money comes from individuals who are giving less than $200. And it has allowed him to really uh, not only generate a very interesting campaign, but it shows you the power of those small gifts and that those individuals who are making small contributions have an investment in the campaign. And they're very active in support of Bernie. Uh, They're out voting for Bernie Sanders. So it shows you that it's possible if you have a campaign that has a message that resonates with voters, that it's possible to raise the money needed to mount a campaign through small individual gifts. But it's still the case that the candidates who tend to get the most attention are those who are seen as capable of raising large amounts of money. And uh, it's certainly the case that candidates who raise a large amount of money are going to be able to have their voices heard, which is really the first step in the process of campaigning. Mark, we hear a little bit about Michael Bloomberg running an independent race. You know, maybe that's a little bit less of a prospect than it than it once was. But right. that idea and um, the durability of the Trump campaign, both of these two self-funded candidates, where does self-funding by wealthy individuals fit into the the scheme here of candidate winnowing and candidate viability? Yeah, no, it's, it's it's very important. First, I want to I want to really agree with with Tony's points, and and also add that sometimes it 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 can be a little misleading to look mainly at the presidential race. Like, really, money has a lot of effects when people are thinking about are they able to run for state legislature or state senator or Congress, and the basic barriers to entry to the uh, to the game. Self funded candidates are, are are complicated, partly because they affect what other candidate other candidates are, are are often scared to face a self-funded candidate they have no idea what the what the limit could be that the uh, that the self-funder could reach generally self-funders are often look a lot like Jeb Bush like they think that money they expect money to do all the work and it doesn't you know it, it doesn't create a winning candidate without a lot of other things uh, going into it so I think I think more than half of self-funders uh, lose, uh, according to the uh, last time I, I looked at that at that research, and you have candidates like you know both uh, both Carly Fiorina and Meg Whitman ran in California as self-funded candidates uh, a few years ago for for statewide office, and 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 both fell short. On the other hand, they had the opportunity and ability to run despite not having political careers in a way that you know ordinary people really wouldn't have a have that have that opportunity even to even to even to start running at a, at a much lower level than senator governor um so self-financed candidates are complicated bloomberg's a little different because he you know served as 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 mayor of our largest city for 12 years so that's that's something i i think it, it would have been anyone's guess what would have happened if blue if bloomberg had jumped into a three-way clinton trump bloomberg race i think i i don't think that's going to happen who knows what would have happened if it did? Very complicated. Trump's almost even more complicated because he's self-financed and he's actually not spending that much. Probably, um, the, the Times had uh, New York Times had a great chart the other day of just the, the amount of of, of 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 free media, free publicity because of the media's just obsession with him. He's he's almost 
he's almost getting away with with neither raising a lot of money nor putting a lot of mm. his own money into it, Very except depending how you count all the jets yep. and all that. I mean, it sounds like you're both saying that this power differential between rich people and everybody else has been a continuing theme in American democracy almost from the beginning, and that it sort of waxes and wanes. Um, would you say that we're at a point now where it's sort of in an extreme situation, or is this just part of a normal cycle, Mark? I, I, it feels it feels quite extreme to me, and I think you know. I, I mean, Tony's been involved in these issues for for longer than I have. But when I, I when I look at now at the concerns that we had when I first got engaged with this issue, which is about you know 1997, 98 or so, um, and we were concerned about fairly modest amounts. It was it was primarily something called soft money that was running through the political parties. There wasn't quite the level of of you know massive independent spending or the ability of a candidate to essentially create a you know what Bush did a super PAC that operates you know without any of the regulatory limits and basically treat that as a campaign those are those are pretty extreme differences um, from from what we were looking at you know 15 or or, or 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 18 years ago but I think it's important when we think about solutions to not to not lock ourselves into a vision of a sort of perfect democracy where where everybody's you know absolutely you know sort of new england town meeting model of democracy as great as that is where where there's an absolute level of equality and fairness it's always going to be messy wealth will always have some kind of influence and so you, you don't want to you don't want to let that perfect ideal you know, distort your, your, your sense of what's really possible, but you also want to recognize the difference between, you know, uh, a not, an imperfect but, you know, not horrible situation and the kind, of, the kind of situation we're in right now. So you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters. Our topic today is Whose Democracy Is It? Wealth and Income Inequality, Money and Politics. Our guests this morning are Mark Schmidt, Director of Political Reform Program at New America, and Tony Corrado, Professor of Government at Colby College. We'll be taking your calls in about 15 or 20 minutes, so stay by to join the conversation. Um, we've been talking about political inequality and financial or wealth inequality, and Mark is suggesting that it may not be practical or even wise to think of eliminating these disparities um, so do we have a problem, or should we just wait this out? Is it going to swing back, or how damaging is the current situation to modern democracy, Tony? Well, I think that we've seen periods in the past where wealth has been important or where the uh, inequality in political liberty, the inequality in political participation, whether it was through voting laws or whether it was through uh, the practice of the suffrage, uh, has led to some groups having more political power than others. And one of the things that we've seen throughout the 20th century, I mean, really beginning with, you know, the move away from property qualifications for voting to the secret ballot, to the expansion of voting rights, to all the reforms of the 1970s that were designed to expand political equality in the sense that everyone would have one vote, that we would have a principle of one person, one vote, and that that would be the foundation for uh, political authority. 
Uh, we have made great gains in that regard. And certainly it's the case if you look more broadly, uh, we've made gains in terms of the changes in technology that allow easier means of communication and allow average citizens to participate in local campaigns or ballot initiatives or just in expressing their view. And so we have made progress, but you know we still have problems that remain. It's, there's still the case where we have uh, not yet expanded the suffrage to everyone. Uh, there are still cases now where we're still passing voting laws that serve to uh, make it too difficult for some people to vote. Uh, and there are still cases where we have, uh, you know, citizens who feel that the political system really doesn't represent them and therefore they're discouraged from participation and they feel powerless. And I think one of the concerns about this new emphasis on the role of the wealthy and this new emphasis on uh, the millionaires who fund campaigns or policy advocacy or the lobbying of big corporations is that it, it, it contributes to this sense of powerlessness. And if people don't feel that their vote is effective, if people don't feel that their voice means something, uh, that's a problem in the political system. And so, you know, for me, I see now that this is not something we haven't been through before because certainly you could look back to the Gilded Age, you could look back to the turn of the, the 20th, 19th centuries where these same problems were a problem of our democracy. And we've made progress from then. But what you see now is that it seems that we're uh, in a move of the pendulum that's taking us more backwards than forwards and that we're reaching a point now where uh, you have a more educated public you have a greater expansion of voting rights, more interests in some of these policy issues in government that has now led the people to believe that they can't really express their role. And I think that that's why we have a problem right now uh, because of the fact that it doesn't contribute to a sense of political effectiveness on the part of the average citizen. Some people are talking about the new populism and comparing both Trump and Sanders as tap tapping into a populist strain of frustration. I mean, is that tied into what you're talking about, Tony? Well, I, you know, I think that that's a uh, symptom uh, of the underlying problem, that what you have now is an enormous frustration with government, particularly in Washington. Uh, what you have is a concern amongst the people that government isn't addressing the problems they're concerned about, that even their representatives often no longer represent their views, uh, that the political parties are not pursuing policies that they're interested in. And so consequently, we've seen this buildup over the course of the last decade or two now of this increasing frustration with government's inability to perform its basic functions. And I think what you're seeing in 2016 is in many ways that has come to a head in both parties, uh, and it's particularly amongst uh, working-class voters. It's particularly amongst uh, those who feel that uh, they are being left out, amongst middle-class voters who feel that they're not getting ahead. And it's this underlying concern that their children are not going to do better than they did. And in both parties, you see voters saying, you know, why is that? Who's responsible for that? And depending on who you blame, uh, you tend to manifest that anger either for a candidate like a Donald Trump or for a candidate like Bernie Sanders. What do you think, Mark, the new populism and what's the role of, uh, we talked about money in politics and how public policy doesn't necessarily track the will of the voters, but more the will of the donors. 
does that frustration feed into the new populism in your view? Oh, sure. Uh, absolutely. I'm a, I'm a little wary of, of putting Trump and Sanders in, in exactly the same box because their constituencies and their approaches are, are, are really quite different. Um, and, and I think Sanders really represents kind of just a, a reinvigorated New Deal liberalism that would, that would go a, a big step further than, than the kind of Clinton-Obama consensus, uh, whereas Trump, I think, represents something, something quite a bit more, uh, more radical and actually less tied to, to specific policies. But uh, I, he certainly represents a lot of the frustration. I think of, of particularly of, of people who cast their lot with Republicans and expected big things to happen and heard promises like we're going to get rid of Obamacare and this this kind of extreme this kind of hyped up approach to uh, to politics and then felt let down by it. So um, I think that's that's a lot of what what Trump represents. Um, and I think we also see in states. Uh, one thing I want to just emphasizes it's not always just a matter of a pendulum swinging as if that's just something that happens in the world there are people in power who would like to use the power they have to lock in the advantages they have and you see that a, a, a lot in states uh, more complicated story i know in maine but if you look at a state like wisconsin or north carolina you see people very deliberately very aggressively passing more restrictive voting laws so that they're moving more low-income, make it more difficult for generally low-income people to vote, simultaneously taking, lifting the limits, whatever they can, on money and politics. So they're simultaneously and really actively trying to bring back a world where unlimited amounts of money can, can dominate the process and voting is, is, is quite dramatically limited. So... It's not, it's not something that, that just happens. It's something that's in the interest of certain people who already hold power and gives them a way to, uh, to lock their power in. Well, that, it's interesting you mentioned that, Mark. That was actually one of my questions, and I'd be interested. I mean, working for the League of Women Voters, we certainly see coordinated efforts around the country for photo ID and other voting restrictions. And um, I wanted to ask you about big money ownership of the thought leadership networks that are driving these complex agendas, um, just as you said, to cement um, a, a certain kind of um, empowerment to a certain few. Talk about that a little bit, Mark, and then I see Tony might have something to say about that, too. Sure. Are, are, are you thinking about things like ALEC, for yeah. example, that, that – uh, that's policy agendas that you see cutting across uh, cutting across various states. But um, not only that. I mean, I think there are other think tank networks that yes, are being yeah, funded yeah. by. Go ahead. Yeah, and there's also more, there 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 are the, there are think tank networks on both the right and the left, um, and and in the center. And often there is a kind of Washington consensus that gets developed about. What's an issue we need to deal with? What's an issue we don't need to deal with? Good example of that uh, is that for a very long period of time, there seemed to be a general consensus of we need to do something about the the long term deficit. Now, that was something that was a push that was actually paid for and financed by a number of wealthy individuals and foundations. This this consensus that we need to do something like the uh, 
Simpson-Bowles plan. There are economists who strongly disagreed with that, and those views were kind of were, were kind of off the table. I think we've now moved away from that a little bit, but it's it's a it's a sign of the way that uh, some ideas kind of can get placed in the center. Some ideas are considered are, are just considered off off limit. Like to, just to take a simple example, uh, although again it, it may change a little bit. For years, people have thought that a great way to raise some revenue from the government, primary for the government, uh, in, a, in a pretty fair way that would also have a very good economic effect, would be a small tax on financial transactions, you know, like a fraction of a penny, that would slow down some of the, you know, massive, uh, fast trading that can lead to uh, to risk in the stock market. It's a, it's a kind of painless way to do two good things at once. That idea has been is just never on the agenda <laughs> because it's it's it goes so so directly against the interest of of a, of a lot of the people who are really financing politics. So yes, there are the conservative think tank networks, other think tank networks, many of which are 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 are, are you know many of which do things I just propose things I disagree with. Um, others of which uh, propose things I I agree with. There's probably more on the right than on the left, or more more. Um, more staff and more organizations and larger, stable organizations. Um, but I, I, that's not a terrible thing, but it's only one part of what creates a kind of broad policy agenda that generally doesn't reflect all the options that are out there or all the things that, that, that people might be interested in. Go ahead, Tony. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, I, I think... Mark has summarized it pretty well in terms of how this is one part. I guess where I differ is that I see this as one of the real changes we've seen in recent years, uh, that there is a much greater effort at what I call lobbying the public in terms of creating certain issue agendas, raising the attention uh, paid to certain issues, or conversely, uh, downplaying certain issues, funding the kind of, you know, research work or the types of uh, public information campaigns uh, that are designed to convince the public something isn't a problem. And I think that this is one of the areas where we have seen uh, uh, particularly organized interests and now, you know, wealthier individuals get much more involved in over the course of the last uh, two decades. It's always been the case that there have been support for whether it's think tanks or a particular group or a particular idea that have been supported by a relatively small number of uh, individuals or or uh, foundations or organizations at the beginning, uh, that's part of the public policy development process in the United States. Uh, you have individuals who support an idea and are willing to help advance that idea. Uh, this has certainly been one of the things that was important in the environmental movement as it developed and in other movements. But what we see now, I think, is a little bit different. It's much more organized. It's much more deliberative. And it's essentially designed to recognize that the best way to pursue our particular self-interest is to develop a broader effort to try to educate the public to our views, or at least to uh, focus legislators on these particular issues. So it's really an effort in issue agendas and agenda setting and what is going to be discussed by legislatures. And I know that there's a lot of attention, uh, for example, to the Koch 
brothers and how they have funded a lot of this type of uh, effort. But you see it more and more now, whether you look at someone like uh, Tom Steyer, the hedge fund billionaire, who has put tens of millions of dollars now into trying to make climate change more of an agenda item. Uh, you see this with Michael Bloomberg, who has spent uh, tens of millions of dollars trying to get gun control and some other issues more in front of the public. Uh, you see it on someone like Joe Rickards, who is the uh, CEO of TD Ameritrade, who has become a big advocate of cutting the federal budget and getting the budget out of a lot of the kinds of areas he doesn't believe it should be in anymore. And I think that there's a, a real change in that regard. And I think it reflects the fact that there's a realization that uh, on the one hand, uh, it's difficult to get things done in Washington so that what we want to do is start to generate more visible support for our ideas. And I think also it's been very effective at the state level. Uh, whether you talk about something like voter identification laws or whether you talk about something, uh, as we've seen here in Maine, like concealed carry laws for guns or whether you talk about uh, things like charter schools, one of the things uh, that we have seen more and more are these uh, organizations will come into states, get the law adopted in that state legislature, and then move to the next state legislature. And pretty soon they say, well, 30 states have adopted this law. And I do think that there's something materially different about that now than the case 20 or 30 or even 40 years ago. Right. And there was, I read West Virginia just passed the call for a convention on the uh, balanced budget. I think they're, what are they, the 27th or 28th state to do that. That's maybe a similar example. That's another example of what, what we see going on right now where, the, you know, this is another issue that's kind of being developed state by state right. in order to serve a broader agenda. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters. Our guests this morning are Mark Schmidt, Director of Political Reform program at New America, and Tony Corrado, professor of government at Colby College. Our topic today is, whose democracy is it? Wealth and income inequality, money and politics. We're going to take some listener calls at this point. Um, uh, the number is 866-625-WERU, or that's 866-625-9378. Remember, we only have one line open, so if you get a busy signal, be patient, keep trying. We'll take your call as soon as we can. As we're on the subject of these think tank networks and promoting agendas, I wanted to ask you both about the effect of big money media ownership. We know Sheldon Adelson has bought a media outlet, um, private enterprise, and cable TV has always been true of broadcast TV. How does that fit into the concept of idea promotion and agenda setting? Tony? You know, it's a difficult question because on the one hand, in our democracy, you want to have public media that's uh, able to educate the public and transmit the news of the days and share opinions with the public. Uh, at the other side of the equation is the concern that uh, particular owners will use these media outlets to take a more editorial stance and advocate uh, particular views or focus coverage on particular issues. Uh, I think that for the most part, uh, you know, this hasn't uh, you know, been a... Uh, 
again, a, a major problem in the United States, uh, you know, in, in our recent history. I mean, clearly back in the days of yellow journalism and back in the days of privately owned newspapers, uh, you often had uh, this issue of the newspaper just reflecting the editor's view or the owner's view. And we have certainly moved away from that. Uh, what's interesting is that there now seems to be a concern that we're starting to move back that direction uh, because of the ability of these individuals to own media outlets and therefore have some influence on what is covered. And, you know, if the audience is looking for the kind of example of that, you know, if you look outside of the United States and you look at someone, for example, like Berlusconi in Italy or a couple of the other leaders that have emerged in Europe now, uh, many of them began by buying media uh, entities and starting to use those for their own purposes, uh, in part because uh, they're certainly uh, probably less of the cultural constraints on news organizations that we have here. Uh, but nonetheless, it's concerned that it's becoming very concentrated into a few hands. Looks like we do have a listener call. Matt from Monhegan, you're on the air. Go ahead with your question or comment. Yeah, I... I uh think that the uh, this worship of, of the corporation in America is insane. And these trade deals that are getting uh, negotiated, TPP and such, is, is, is going to leave the world run by a handful of corporations. You know, I feel like our political system's a joke. Your, uh, your vote doesn't count between superdelegates and electoral colleges. You vote for somebody for president, they don't get elected. And it just seems to me that wealth just keeps consolidating and consolidating and consolidating. And the problem is easily and has been identified, but what to do about it just seems to me impossible. You know? I'm a commercial fisherman. I've been put out of business by the federal government. They've created a distressed asset out of my boat. You can't go fishing in a little boat with the heaps of regulations that have been put on us where big boats and fleet owners can get along fine. They just charge it off to the crew. And it's, uh, it's very disconcerting for me to see this. I, I don't think, think enough is being done about it fast enough. So I hope something changes, but I'll take my answer off here. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Um, Mark, do you want to comment on that? He's talking about corporate dominance of political and economic life and um, how that fits into money and politics. Going yeah, I, I think it's really important. And I think too often we talk about the influence of money in politics as something isolated from bigger changes in corporate structures and, and economic structures. And the level of, of concentration in our economy and the effect that that has on people who are essentially producers and trying to, uh, trying to produce for these companies, but they're really, they, they, they're so limited in, uh, in, in who they can sell to and who they can work with because of the domination of whether it's a Walmart or an Amazon or um, what one of my colleagues calls platform monopolies like Google uh, that, that really control what you're able to uh, – you, you, you have no other option uh, in, in certain circumstances. Economic concentration, it's, it's, a, it's an issue that had been – again, we're talking about things that are kind of off the agenda – really talking about economic concentration, antitrust enforcement, those issues in a serious way had really fallen off the agenda for a number of decades, really. And last week, I believe, the Senate held a hearing on economic concentration and antitrust for the first time in years. And 
beginning to be to, to focus on that. Those things really go together. And I think we have an economy where people where where people want to think of think of a way in which their company can completely dominate a field as opposed to find a niche and and, and earn a profit. Completely dominate a field and, and use the political process quite aggressively to maintain that advantage. That's not how corporations operated in the you know in, in say the 1970s when they had much more of a civic sense and a sense that they were publicly created entities, publicly chartered, and had some general obligation other than you know the, the, the win big and win as 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 quickly and aggressively as possible. Yep. We are taking your calls. That's one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. We have another listener on the phone. It's Lindy from Southwest Harbor. Go ahead. Uh, good morning. Thank you so much for this wonderful program. Um, <clears throat> the topic is profound. Uh, I just want to basically say I came to my senses to caucus for Bernie. <laughs> uh, I so much had wanted a woman president, but I thank God I came to my senses because Hillary's vote in Iraq and also what she did in Libya. I mean, thousands of innocent people are dead because of her hawkishness. And her alliance with the AI, uh, American-Israel-Jewish lobby. <clears throat> so having said that, um, in regard to what you're talking about, it's just amazing that the polarity between, I oh, hate saying his name, Trump and Bernie is a representation of the depth of uh, feeling that people have about um, their issues. I mean, Trump is a fascist, and that's how Hitler came to power. And, um, you know, the media coverage of him has been so profound. I've even been hearing Trump on Amy, and it's been disappointing me a little bit. But just the point that I want to make is that the people that I know in this community own businesses are for Trump because they feel they shouldn't have to pay the taxes that they they pay. And then the people who are for Bernie are for uh, equal representation and um, for gay rights, uh, Black Lives Matter, human rights, um, and the political, that's all called political correctness. Um, And let's let's say what political correctness is, get rid of the meaning of what those words mean is, human dignity and value for people's lives. So, Lindy, and, do you have a question yes, for one my, of our my guests? my question is, what uh, do, uh, thank you so much, I don't mean to ramble on, um, what do these people on your panel think about the polarity in, between uh, Trump and Bernie, and is there hope for us? Um, Tony, you want to take a crack at that one? Well, there are a couple of things, uh, Lindy. First of all, um, you know, if you look at... Uh, Trump and you look at Bernie Sanders, one of the things that's most interesting about Bernie Sanders is that it's a very aspirational candidacy where he kind of reflects our hope. You know, Bill Clinton used to say there are two basic emotions in politics, hope and fear. And Bernie certainly is much more on the side of hope in terms of advocating, particularly with respect to the concerns about income inequality and the concerns about promoting greater equality and concerns about doing something about what he sees as the effect of these multinational 
multinational corporations and corporations. And in that view, generally, uh, like Pat, the earlier caller from Monhegan, one of the things we have seen is a real concern that it's large corporations and economic concentrations of wealth that are really inhibiting opportunities for others in the United States. Trump, on his side of the uh, equation, also is in some ways reflecting the kind of frustration that uh, we've even heard today in terms of how difficult it is to make a living, uh, the problems that we're having in the country, and tends to look at trade deals, tends to look at economic uh, policy and say that's what's to blame for it, and therefore he can do a better job because he's a businessman. And I was uh, talking earlier about the sense of political frustration in the country, and I think part of what is reflected in Trump is this political frustration in that individuals are finally getting to the point of simply saying, I don't think that these officials in Washington are doing anything for me. I might as well try a non-politician. And there's an enormous desire for an outsider as basically basically a vessel for that anger and frustration. And then it's also the case that in the, in the case of Trump, there is a, a nativist rhetoric and element uh, that plays on a kind of darker side we still have in American politics, which is something that has been in American politics for a long time. And he is tapping into that, which is, again, a sense of frustration that there aren't enough jobs here uh, because of the immigration that they're taking jobs, that they're a burden on the government, and therefore uh, they're willing to support Trump. So in some ways, uh, the polarity is on very different issues, but underneath is a kind of similarity that reflects the unwillingness of the political system to address the real concerns people have. And I think in both cases, the real concern that underlies everything is the economic anxiety people feel about what their future looks like. Thank you. We have another caller on the line. Just to remind you, we are taking your calls at 1-866-625-9378. We have Catherine on the line from Appleton. Go ahead, Catherine. Yes, good morning. Good morning. Um, it's, it's pretty simple. The golden rule is those that have the gold rule, and it's always been that way all throughout history, from monarchies to the illusion of democracy, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, but in that simplicity, the whole that has been dug is very, very deep. And uh, the, the bankers own this country. We gave the power away, our, our Congress, back in 1913, who it was, Congress was supposed to make our money, gave it off to a private cartel of bankers, the, the Morgans, the Rockefellers, etc. And they rule our country. They rule the world. They get us into wars. They make money. They influence our politicians. We, they loan us money for the government. We pay them back in, in interest. I mean, that is it, so simple. They are the villains. They are the villains that are running this planet and everything. And we are serfs and we are slaves. And it's always been that way. The money changers. And people may be rolling their eyes. But it's simple. That's the way it is, and I think you two men know this. Um, I'll listen to your comments. Thank you. Go ahead, Mark. You're up. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I want to just disagree a little bit just to say that we can and have done better, and we can create ways for 
citizens to be much more deeply involved in politics, to connect to politics. I think we're making it very hard right now. We can do much better. We can make it easier for uh, campaigns like Bernie Sanders that actually have a broad base of support to get going and get ahead using things like public financing uh, to, to enable that and, and, and give that a boost using technology a, a little more smartly. So, you know, as I said at the beginning, there, wealth will always have some influence, but we can do much better about about offsetting it as much as controlling it, offsetting it with citizens' voices. And I guess one thing that's hopeful, just to go back to the to the previous question, which was which was a great one, is that the what Bernie Sanders has done is show that there that there is a different agenda than the general. Clinton-Obama broad consensus, that there's something a little more ambitious out there. And the, the age disparity in the Democratic primaries with, you know, voters under 35 or so overwhelmingly voting for Sanders, to me that says, you know, we are going to have a different kind of political agenda. It's going to look at trade deals differently. It's going to look at inequality differently. And it's going to look at political reform as not just you know, an interesting idea that maybe some people in the League of Women Voters are interested in, but as something that has broad-based grassroots support. And I think eventually we'll also see broad-based, enthusiastic grassroots support for that kind of reform of our politics on the on the conservative side as well. We're not seeing it; we're seeing only glimmers of it. Um, but I think there's a I think there's a there's a, a real opportunity there. So I'm a lot more hopeful than the than the last caller. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther, the League of Women Voters. Our guests this morning are Mark Schmidt, Director of the Political Reform Program at New America, and Tony Corrado, Professor of Government at Colby College. We'll be taking your calls for maybe one or two more calls, but it's 866-625-9378. We have another caller on the line. It's Emily from Bethesda. Go ahead, Emily. Hi. Uh, thanks for this great uh, show. I'm really enjoying it. Um, now, you know, obviously there are a lot of very serious problems, but over time we have created rules and laws that are supposed to at least begin incrementally to um, address the problems of money in politics. We have a number of campaign finance laws and limits in place. Um, one of the challenges and, and really, you know, hard things to deal with is that the enforcement of those laws um, is often very problematic. We see a lot of, um, you know, rules about Super PACs not supposing, or supposing not to, to coordinate with candidates being ignored. There's a lot of frustration about whether nonprofits are actually nonprofits or essentially, you know, um, political advertisers. The rise of issue ads that are really um, primarily supporting a candidate or opposing a candidate. So, you know, it's, it's uh, a real challenge, not just in terms of creating good laws, but also actually getting the laws that we have enforced, right? Um, and, you know, I... I I'm wondering if, if either of, of the um, of the the folks in your your studio have any sense of whether there was ever a time when enforcement mechanisms were really effective, or what it takes to make uh, the enforcement of campaign finance law, um, you know, a, a reality and something that we can we can you know rely upon. That's an excellent question, Emily. I'm going to throw that one to Tony. Go ahead. 
Well, I think Emily's right. I mean, one of the things that we have seen, certainly if you judge by the federal level, is an inability to enforce federal campaign finance laws. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go out on a real limb here and think that Mark agrees with me that the Federal Election Commission has not been very effective <laughs> as a means of enforcing campaign finance laws. In fact, it's, it's reached levels of dysfunction that even I couldn't have predicted <laughs> over the course of the last 40 years. But nonetheless, if you do look, there are places where the laws are enforced fairly well. I mean, it's complicated in the United States because the Supreme Court and the courts have issued rulings that kind of hamstring what we can do here. But nonetheless, there are places, the New York City Campaign Finance Board, in California, their commission that overlooks the law. Uh, I think here in Maine, we do a fairly good job in terms of the Maine Ethics and Elections Commission in terms of enforcing the laws. But generally, what it means is that you're going to need an enforcement authority that's independent. You need an enforcement authority that has an odd number of members so that they can make decisions rather than these three to three splits. Uh, you need the ability uh, to impose fines on candidates who, who violate the law or political committees that violate the laws. And you need to have a, a clear set of rules that makes it easy to implement the law, both for candidates and for those who are active on the side of making contributions, you know, and for the enforcement agencies. But I think that if you have some of those features, you can have an effective means of enforcing the law. And we see that in a number of states and localities around the country that provide models that could be used. I want to bring up one of my favorite little bugaboos, uh, Crossroads GPS was, you know, allowed by the IRS to retain its 501c4 status and the IRS, some might say, is a little beleaguered um, and possibly a tad understaffed at this point. How does um, this sort of small government agenda that's reduced the enforcement capabilities of some of these agencies play into our hope for better enforcement? Mark, would you like to... Answer? Yeah, I mean, exactly. The one thing I wanted to add to Tony's very good uh, analysis of it was, was the IRS dimension and the fact that the IRS was really almost deliberately attacked for doing a perfectly legitimate part of its job, which is to try to determine whether some of these nonprofits that were engaging in politics were essentially doing what, what you're not allowed, to, what you're not supposed to do with a nonprofit, a, a, C, a C4 in particular. And uh, they, they were so attacked for doing that, it became an excuse to cut that part of the budget. It's very hard for the IRS to do that anyway. Um, what, what some people will tell you about the IRS is if it's, if it's not something that brings in revenue, they're not that focused on doing it. And checking the tax status of these C4s won't necessarily uh, bring in bring in more revenue. So it's kind of asking the we're already asking the IRS to do a job that, in theory, the Federal Election Commission or some other agency, some ethics agency, should do. Um, and in addition to giving them a job that they're not well suited to do, we've now so stripped the funding, we put them under so much attack, or we, that, that particularly the uh, the Republicans in Congress and the uh, kind of conservative media machine, to, to, you know, creating a poor bureaucrat named Lois Lerner who's been cre turned into a some kind of some kind of monster for really just trying to do her job at a at a at a moment when they were really being flooded by these uh, by the by, by applications from these organizations really has been shocking to see and in a sense it's it's you know I was saying earlier that some of these things are deliberate in this case 
enforcement was kind of broken deliberately. And and I think similarly that's also true at the to, to some extent at the Federal Election Commission. You you in addition to the things that that Tony suggested, like having an odd number of members, when you look at these good agencies, they have members who board members who are basically have they have non-political careers and they have a broad sense of public obligation. The Federal Election Commission is basically election lawyers for the two parties who are going, when they leave the FEC, they're going to go back to being election lawyers for one or the other party. Um, that's not a formula for a broad perspective on the public interest. We're running out of time this morning. In the last few moments that we have, I'd like to give you each a chance to s sort of sum up with what you think the most important things we can do in the face of this um, really concerted effort to, uh, by those in power to retain power. So I'll uh, turn to you first, Mark, parting shot. Sure. I mean, I think that what I would like is for, is for more and more people to understand that we can do a better job of reflecting the public if we create more ways for people to be engaged. And then when it comes to when it comes just to money in politics, the most important thing we can do is some kind of public financing where like I mean Maine Maine system, which is a which is a good model, New York City's system, which is a probably a better model, where they if you contribute hundred and seventy five dollars it gets matched. You hundred and seventy five dollars or less it gets matched six to one. So the incentive for a politician to go to somebody and ask for $50 or ask for $20 because that will really turn into something meaningful totally changes the equation and almost all candidates participate it's a it's a really it's a it's a really healthy approach or in Seattle where they just enacted a system of vouchers so that everybody basically gets you know $100 in $20 coupons that they can contribute to candidates or to parties total experiment no idea how it's going to work. I can I can tell you five things that might go wrong and five things that might go right. Um, but those are the really exciting opportunities. So I guess I want to I want to make sure people have a little bit bit of a message of hope um, because there really is hope out there. Thank you so much, Mark. Over to you, Tony. Your parting thoughts. First. One of the things that's been encouraging to me is that you've seen both with Obama, you've seen now with Sanders, you've seen with a number of candidates in the states uh, a, a greater enthusiasm on the part of younger voters and more involvement on the part of the younger generation starting to get involved in politics. And as Mark noted, there's a number of changes going on in campaign finance at the state and local level. And one of the things I think that gets too much attention in some ways is Congress, that if you look at the states now, there are a large number of states that are pursuing reforms to make the process more open. While there are concerns about things like voter identification, there are also states that have same-day registration. There are also states that are now developing, as here in Maine, more liberalized absentee ballot rules, so that even in our caucuses in the Democratic Party in Maine, uh, this time around, absentee voting was allowed. Uh, some places are starting to experiment with instant runoff voting or with uh, some sort of single transferable vote and creating more options for candidates to get on the ballot. I think one of the things that we can see is there are models starting to emerge from states and cities around the country that show us the way forward and that give us examples of the types of reforms that will make our democracy more inclusive and give individuals a greater feeling that their vote counts. And I think that's one of the biggest steps we can start to make now, which is easy to achieve. 
Thank you so much, Tony and Mark. We are out of time now. Um, thank you to our guests this morning, Mark Schmidt, Director of the Political Reform Program at New America, and Tony Corrado, Professor of Government at Colby College. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thank you to Amy Brown, our engineer at WERU. Thank you to our listeners. If you have suggestions for a topic or guests on a future Democracy Forum or to join the League, email us at lwvme.org or call the League, 622-0256. Thank you all so much. We'll see you next month. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from New Surrey Theatre, 